0: Every once in a while, a piece touches a nerve. Did you read Washington Post ideas columnist, Christine Emba's July 10 essay, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness? If you haven't, I'm almost jealous because it's so darn good. From labor market analysis to deaths of despair, from trends amongst CEOs and presidents and college admissions, to the rise of new mass market YouTubers, her argument is as powerful today as ever. The piece has received over 10,400 written comments so far. And if you're on the go, you can listen for 43 minutes to the link in the show notes as Christine reads all 5,507 words. Men are lost says something haunting, something none of us quite understand, and something both our guests today remind us matters equally to men and women alike. Christine is on the front end of her career as a journalist, which began as a deputy editor for the Economist Intelligence Unit, and then as a Hilton Kramer Fellow at the New Criterion. But since 2015, she's been happily ensconced at The Post, where her op-eds consistently demonstrate writing from a columnist who's done her homework. They track the key data, but often integrate a personal element too. So you come away realizing we're complex, that two truths can be held in tension. And when we're coasting along, Christine will punch you in the eye. Last year, it was a book called Rethinking Sex, as listeners to this podcast may recall. That best-selling book combined on-the-ground stories from Princeton, the history of feminism waves one, two, and three, compelling data on the newest trend lines in hookup culture, porn, and abortion, and once again, personal story. The ending is unresolved. Today on the podcast, Christine discusses this summer's article on the crisis men face, with legendary scholar Richard Reeves, who's just come off a nine-year flourishing career at the Brookings Institution to launch a new think tank, the American Institute for Boys and Men. Last fall, Richard published an important book that Christine cites at substantive length in her post column, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters and What to Do About It. One final note, these two big picture wise thinkers have been on the road a good bit together of late, talking up the complex plight that young men today face. But in this conversation, they also touch on a topic they've each said relatively little about, at least in print, religious faith, and on the role of the American church and other houses of worship in contributing to today's strange, contemporary, increasingly consequential crisis of men. And they argue those communities may, in fact, be an important part of the way out. Enjoy the conversation.
1: It was great to be here and a chance to talk to Christine. Christine has written what I'm calling a landmark essay on what's happening to boys and men, what's happening to masculinity. And I think it's a landmark for a number of reasons. Number one, it brings together a lot of the data, which many of us have been working on, but in a really compelling way. These huge gaps in education, these huge problems in mental health for a lot of boys and young men. But what Christine does is to situate it in a cultural context. It's just a real put a finger on this sense of dislocation. The fact that so many men just feel lost. They don't quite know who to be. They know what not to do. They don't know what to do. They know who they're supposed to not be, but they're not supposed to be who they are to be. And that vacuum, that sense of disequilibrium, right? I just think it's captured in her interviews and in the work that Christine has done. And also, candidly, the fact that it's coming from a writer like Christine in a place like the Washington Post is also very important because these issues around boys and men tend to just code right almost automatically a code conservative. If you're a conservative, you're worried about this, but if you lean a bit center left, then that's just a distraction from problems of women and girls. And so, so it, it opens up a new space for this conversation in a way that I think is compassionate and empirically based. And so I'm thrilled to see this, this happening. And actually, Christine, I wanna know first of all, whether or not that, feels like what you're trying to do with this? Because as I've said, I followed lots of other books. I have got lots of charts and like boring <laughs> data series, but I couldn't bring it to life in the way you did. And I think that's because you were a bit braver than me in saying that there's something wrong in the culture here. Is that is that what you're trying to do with it? Is that fair?
2: Wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Richard. And thanks again, Josh, for having me on to talk about this. I think that you're description of the essay, Richard really calls out exactly what I was trying to point out. This fact that, as the title says, men are lost. And what I mean by lost is really lost, sort of lost in space, not sure who to be, how to act, what their future is. I mean, you came to this from, I think both the fact that you're obviously the father of sons, but Mm. yes, in in your work looking at the data as a researcher. In fact, I cite much of your data in your great book <laughs> in the piece, but I came to it, as I say, in you know the very opening lines of this essay, by just looking at the young men, the men, but especially younger men, millennials and younger in my life, in the lives of my friends and being like, you know, there's something, they're just getting weird. <laughs> I can't quite put a finger on it, but there are all of these different signs, whether it was sort of the rise of incels a couple of years ago, this fascination with people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate, an imbalance that I was seeing, yes, in the educational sphere, as you described, Richard, but also, I mean, I'm a young woman living in an urban center in the dating arena, too, where so many of my female friends are just like, I don't know what's happened To men. They're either total flops or they've disappeared, which sort of sounds a little bit funny. But when you think about the effect that that has on people's lives, the lives of these men who have seemingly disappeared, and the women who would like to be with them, the family members who are worried about them, all of these little threads, Mm. you know, when you put them together, seem to point to something larger. And I just wanted to understand that and try and figure out what was going on. Ended up sort of just going around and talking to a lot of young men, talking to experts like yourself and Scott Galloway, some therapists, some others, to just try and get a handle on on the scenario. And what I came out with was was kind of bleak. You know, it does seem that men are lost, that especially among younger men, there is a sort of lack of role modeling combined with rapid changes in our society and our economic structure that have led to just a sense that they don't know how to be a man and that it's not clear what being a man means anymore. And in some sense, parts of the culture are telling them that it isn't a valuable thing to be at all, that they shouldn't even be thinking about it which of course then leaves people very confused. And then what we're seeing sort of politically is that often on the right or in right-coded spaces, solutions to this this lostness, this sense of being lost in the wilderness, a map of some kind is being handed over to men, but is often not quite the map that we want in this modern era. Often it relies yeah. on negative stereotypes of women, demonization of femininity. In the case of some of the influencers who have gained traction, we're going to mention Andrew Tate a lot, probably <laughs> the next hour, some downright antisocial and immoral recommendations. And on sort of the mainstream and even the progressive side, while there's a willingness to criticize how men are becoming toxic or how there are problems with quote unquote, traditional masculinity There hasn't been a positive vision offered, a reason for or a way for men to be who they are, an idea of what the best self would be just to sort of general, well, change, be a better person, but we're not going to tell you how. And so Mm. it feels like there's a little bit of a trap. Which way do men go? And pretty much all of the men I talked to were sort of sitting between those two pathways.
1: It's interesting. I don't know if we've talked about this before, Christine, but because I'm older than you, that means two things. It means one, I didn't write about dating. <laughs> and as Christine knows, there was a, a chapter on sex and dating that didn't appear in my book. And part of it was just because it just, I felt so out of touch with what's happened. But in some ways, I think it is kind of ground zero. But the other thing about being older is that I can remember the 1980s when women were encouraged to wear shoulder pads and go mm-hmm. to assertiveness training and stand differently. And basically the message was, if you want to make it, you've got to be like a guy. And then women just said, no, like they basically ref- mostly refused that. I think it was an important moment in the development of the women's movement to say, look, we don't have to start looking like men and acting like men. We want equality, but we don't want androgyny, right? We want to be women and moms and everything else, but we also want to be CEOs and lawyers and journalists. and so. On. But I think there's a bit of something happening almost the other way around now, which is this sense that like, if men want to make it, they've got to be like women, and that we're in danger in just the same way that we treated women like defective men in the 70s and 80s all too often. I do think there's a danger now that we treat men like defective women, and that finds this sort of ground zero thing in the dating market, in this sense of like, if men are a bit different in terms of their sex drives or preferences or just how they are in the world, that's something they just don't know what to do with anymore. And so I wasn't brave enough to really go into this space in a way that you were, but I do think that this issue of like romantic life, what's happening romantically, what's happening in terms of sex, what's happening in terms of mating, is in some ways where all these chickens come home to roost, right, around education and education. And so I do think that it's an incredibly important space but it's hard to get at empirically and it's hard to navigate. I think you do that brilliantly. And I think you draw on your own personal experience very bravely. There's this great point in your essay. I have to, <laughs> I have to say this. Right, there's just this great point in this essay where, where you actually talk to Scott, to Scott Galloway. And he says, the thing is that if you get these men who've just basically become very like demasculinized, they basically become as feminine as they can. The, the women might say that's what they want, but they don't want to go out with them. I think you might have said something a little bit ruder than that. But it's like, they don't want... And Christine, you wrote, you wrote as a young, I think, I may be quoting you directly, as a young heterosexual woman, I have to say, I heard those words and recognized them. That's a very brave thing to write.
2: As a heterosexual woman, I cringe in recognition.
1: (laughs) I cringe in recognition. But honestly, that's the sort of cultural courage that it takes to actually say, look, we're all struggling with this, but there's sometimes a lack of honesty about what men and women really want and how we really are. And I think what part of the contribution here that we're both trying to make in different ways is just to be a bit more honest, honest about the facts, honest about the feelings, and just actually just have a proper conversation about this that isn't weighted with all that cultural baggage.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing about the essay that surprised me and continues to surprise me is that it spurred a huge amount of conversation and it almost felt as though people had been waiting to talk about this subject, that there was a lot of just pent up curiosity, fear, like just something that they wanted to talk about. And for some reason, there hadn't quite yet been the piece that made it kind of safe to talk about. A piece that like, if you shared it with someone, wouldn't immediately brand you as like secretly a men's rights activist, or that didn't seem like it was coming from a sort of, ultra-feminist, I hate men and you should hate them too perspective, which I should say is a stereotype. (laughs) I identify as a feminist and I don't hate men. I actually really like them. And I, I think most women do. You know, I don't want to say that this was all my doing at all, but I think also having this discussion in the pages of the Washington Post, a mainstream outlet, and being able to kind of try and talk about this issue at length, in a not explicitly political way either, made it accessible to a lot of people. It had more reach than it might have coming from other writers or other sources. And I'm still getting emails. I mean, the piece, the essay itself came out over the summer, but even today I'm I'm still getting emails and DMs and texts from people who are like, thank you for, I've been feeling this, but I hadn't quite put it together. In this way, this has helped me understand something that I'm seeing in my son, brother, friend. Mm. And I've sent it to my group chat. <laughs> We're going to talk yeah. about it. And that's really exciting for me because I think that my philosophy with these social questions, especially, you know, this was my philosophy in writing my book, Rethinking Sex, is that the first step to making any progress on these hard questions, especially ones that are so personal and so core to our being, is to be able to talk about them openly to acknowledge that, in fact, maybe men are in a crisis, and we need to figure out what to do about it, instead of having that as a, a whispered feeling that you, you know, think about by yourself, or maybe share with one friend, but are loath to talk about in public. Yeah,
1: I, I, I wonder to get, if get, I, get past I, this idea of zero yeah. sum. That's the other thing is, is I found it probably one of my biggest contributions has just been to give people language. So I say repeatedly, it's not zero sum. You can think two thoughts at once. You can care about all the ongoing issues for women and girls and the issues of boys and men. And simply saying that does kind of create a new permission space. And I think that's in different ways. That's exactly what, where our, our work, although it's different, aligns, which is to just open up the aperture for this conversation and what christine has discovered in a different way is similar to what i discovered when i put out videos and got people responding to is that the reservoir of unmet male need just to talk about this stuff and of concern about men that reservoir is huge and so if you tap it in the right way (laughs) with an essay like christine's then you just it's like hitting a geyser And of course, that's what Jordan Peterson and various other people have been doing on the right for years. They've been draining that reservoir for a very long time. But the relief that some people feel when they do, as Christine says, feel able to talk about it is palpable because they don't feel so alone and they don't feel like they're risking their professional lives merely by discussing it. Yeah,
0: as you said, Christine, toward the end, you know, that justifiably progressives want to preserve the major gains made for women over the past several decades, gains that are still fragile. It's easy to mistake attention as zero sum to fear that putting more effort into helping men might mean we won't want to have space for for women anymore. And I agree with that. That was resonant. I do want to ask, though, a little bit about how you see the religion angle fitting into this storyline. Richard didn't write the sex and dating chapter in his book, and you didn't particularly draw out stories of how religious institutions reinforce or don't reinforce healthy manhood, masculinity, or potentially perpetuate misogyny or otherwise. And, and I think you know the author, Christine Dume, mm-hmm. uh, up at Calvin University, who had that provocative book about Jesus and John Wayne. And she sort of says, look, at least in the evangelical culture and world, there's this idea of Braveheart as the ideal man There's this (laughs) ideal of, what was it, John Eldridge had that book long ago, Wild at Heart, you know, an adventure. How do you see, because you didn't talk this too much in the the essay and, Richard, in your book either, how do you see religion playing into this? Is the deficit in part created by faith communities not equipping young men and, and learning how to be a healthy man? Is it enabled by the fact that the black church is much more full of women than it is men today? How do you see that?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And the way that I think faith and the church play into this problem is another sort of multi-thread situation. And I don't know if I can draw them all. I mean, I definitely can't draw them all out, but I'll, a few things that I've been thinking about that are sort of separate, but all end up having interesting effects on this question. One, what you mentioned about the black church, especially being heavily female. The fact is that most churches at this point, most religious faiths are heavily female. Women tend to be more devout and go to church or religious services more often, certainly among most Christian faiths. I think the exceptions maybe are very Orthodox faiths, like Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, and in some cases, Islam, actually. So the Christian church I think many men see it as becoming increasingly feminized. And this is also a discussion that you see happening online and in other spaces among these sort of amoral, socially untethered manfluencers, I call them. You have people like, again, Tator, the Bronze Age pervert, whose book I (laughs) write about in my piece, who will say things like, yeah, Christianity is, is for wimps and sissies who forgive people, We need to ignore that and move back to like an almost pagan sort of revitalized non-faith in which men are strong and which men have more of a presence, which is frankly rather frightening. But that's one thread. When we talk about role modeling too, one of the things that so many young men I interviewed for this piece, and I know that many of the young men Richard talked to for his book have said similar things, there's just a dearth of male role models for younger guys to look up to. Maybe they don't have a stronger father figure in the home. Maybe they don't know a lot of other adult men. And I think in the past, churches were community centers where people spent much more of their social time. And so theoretically, if maybe you didn't have a dad at home or a strong male role model, but if you were somebody who went to church regularly or were part of a faith community, you had the opportunity to Meet other men to sort of join a small group to find community that could show you how to be a man. But in this moment, and especially for younger generations, you know, church attendance has seen a, a huge decline. Churches are no longer sort of this the site of social formation that they used to be, and so one of the key spaces where men could learn from other men has really dropped off. And what is replacing it is the church of YouTube. Instead of watching a sermon, you know, a young guy will log on and just watch his favorite Jordan Peterson video or his favorite, you know, listen to Joe Rogan's podcast for hours at a time. That podcast is incredibly long. He just talks for three hours and people, millions of people listen. I don't understand. But clearly he's doing something that appeals to young men. It's like the most listened to podcast in the world, I think, at this point. So, you know, that's a thread just the lack of sort of physical community that and role modeling that churches used to provide. And then I think there's what Kristen Dume talks about, attention within the church. There are, especially in certain denominations, I mean, we've seen so much turmoil in the SBC over what the role of men is versus the role of women, whether men should have sort of higher positions and more power in the church and women should kind of sit back in a certain way, you do see some churches, not all, but some, actually maybe reifying some of these more old-fashioned and sometimes, yes, misogynistic visions of masculinity, either as a ploy to reach men uh, and show that men can be comfortable in this space, or because they are bound to traditions that don't really make sense in this moment, or misreadings of scripture, or for whatever reason. And that can continue to perpetuate sort of Again, I, we've talked about, and I think we'll talk about, at least in the next half hour, the dangers of the phrase toxic masculinity, but these mm-hmm. versions of masculinity that are actually, again, negative and rely on demeaning women. On the opposite hand, if you have sort of the what some commentators have described as kind of this over-feminized church where it's like, well, what men are for right now is to just continue to sacrifice and play the role that their grandfather did. And we're not going to update it. You just do what you're supposed to do. That's all we've got for you, men. It's not very inviting either, frankly, Hmm. to an outsider's perspective. So why would a man go there (laughs) to figure out who to be?
1: It's interesting, isn't it, that listening to you, I agree with all of that. And it makes me think that to some extent, the church is mirroring some of these broader tensions Mm -hmm. around this, that on the one hand, you've got this one center of gravity in our culture, which is essentially saying you should be more feminine, we're feminizing society, the future's female, etc. And you do see that in some churches. And you're right, there's been a reaction against it. And then on the other hand, you've got this much more patriarchal, strongly traditional view about masculinity and, and femininity. And then it gets pushed to extremes. It's very interesting to me how little commentary there's been on the fact that Andrew Tate, who is this online influence we've mentioned already, has converted to Islam. And the appeal of Andrew Tate among a lot of young Muslim men is something that's very interesting. And I'm talking to some imams about that now, kind of through my own work. But as far as the church is concerned, partly I think it's mirroring it. But there's also something else going on here too, which is that maybe this is the most conservative thing that I'm going to say, at least during this hour. But it's, I'll say it, masculinity is somewhat more socially constructed than femininity. That the male role has to be built and communicated and socialized a bit more because the role of men in reproduction is somewhat less direct. And so we need institutions that help boys become men. And those institutions flourish at best when we're not telling boys how to become men, we're showing them. Because they believe their eyes, not their ears. And so where are those cultural spaces within which we do that necessary work of helping boys to become men? And traditionally churches with rites of passage, with specific roles, with strong role models, with associated Boy Scout groups, whatever you want to say. They have, for good or ill, but I would say overall for good, have played an incredibly important anthropological role in helping that transition take place. And we, I do think it's incredibly arrogant of us as a culture if we think that we can just expect boys to become men automatically. That doesn't happen. It's something that's created. And if we're not creating it, as Christine suggested earlier, then who is? And I would rather, as a general proposition, that our boys are learning how to become men within a church context than from Andrew Tate or other people or Jocko or somebody else online. I don't think that's a controversial statement, but let's see if it is or not. <laughs> let's find out. Do you agree with that, Christine?
2: I think that's right. I really do. I mean, I increasingly, when I'm looking at the influencers who are becoming popular online and in other spaces, we all worship, you know, as I think David Foster Wallace maybe mm-hmm. said. Yeah. It's just, you know, what is the object of our worship? There is still something being worshipped or reified by all these influencers. And if you ask what it is, the answer can be very dark. I totally agree with you. I would rather have men learning to be men, learning to be masculine in a space like a church that also has sort of moral goals and a moral grounding that emphasizes our responsibilities to each Mm. other. And yes, a faith than to have masculinity being taught in these spaces where we're learning that morality means nothing. What it means to be a man is to be the strongest and do whatever you want to do with the weak. And this sort of like Nietzschean, neo-pagan, sort of self-made God attitude that is increasingly pervasive among the most popular male influencers. But that is the direction that I think we're moving in. And I think the churches maybe should be more worried about this than they are because there is also Mm -hmm. something darkly attractive about the new masculine idea of just the strong man who isn't tied down by prosaic morality or is asked to help other people or serve society or a family or take care of the, the women and families in his life, but who just does what he wants. Yeah. That's what's being preached, actually. And that sense of freedom is very alluring to a lot it is of a bit, young men. And it, Perhaps and it's, more alluring than, then, you know, a sacrificial ideal of right. a servant
1: leader. <laughs> that's why you have that's why we have to learn. And that's why it's that's why it's hard, right? And that's why this kind of moral formation role that churches can play, and it's not just churches, of course, is hugely important. I've actually written a, a piece of a comment magazine. On the difference between what I call lone ranger masculinity, which is very much along the lines that Christine was just discussing, which is going your own way, being your own man, being out on the range, whatever it is, this very isolated view of masculinity. And I contrast that with a relational vision of masculinity, where actually real masculinity is about producing more than you need for yourself whatever that thing is, whether it's money or food, something. But it's, it's a necessarily contributory model for masculinity. I use my own father as an example of that, who I think embodied relational masculinity. His role and his masculinity was expressed not in separation from other people, but precisely in relation to other people and his care for those people. And I think if churches can't help to cultivate a relational view of masculinity, you have to ask who can. Because unless I'm a very bad theologian, that seems to be an extraordinarily strong part of the Christian message, which is, as Christine says, about being a servant, being in relationship with others, thinking about it. There's a reason why President Obama called his initiative for black men, my brother's keeper. And so that sense of keeping, that sense of providing in all kinds of ways is just at the heart of, I think, relational Christianity. And so if, If not the church, then who? And right now, I don't think the church is covering itself entirely in glory with some of these questions because they're either going full bore on the reactionary side or they're ducking the question altogether.
0: But President Obama got in a little trouble with that yeah, initiative, right, bit. with a mm-hmm. little bit of pushback mm-hmm. from, from the other side, as you, as you drew it yeah. in the in the a piece. little bit. One of his advisors was Ron Mincy with black males left behind. And I'm curious to ask a little bit about sort of the larger culture of fear that's also in play, the sort of idea of the peace, and, and really your and new project. Richard also getting into a moment, kind of a cultural moment, a sense of fracture, a sense of, look, at some level, there's an expectation historically that if you are a white male and you go to college, you should succeed. What's your piece talk about, Christina? All 45 U.S. presidents have been men, <laughs> CEOs named Michael and James are more common than all female CEOs together or yeah, something like yeah, this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, you're supposed to make it and yet they aren't. And Richard's got the data on this and yet in terms of college graduation rates in terms of med school and jobs today white college jobs today what is the data on this? I mean why is there a sense of fear that's maybe perhaps pervasive amongst some young men 20somethings and 30somethings who are listening to these video messages from Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson
1: well I'll have I'll have a go and I'll be to see if it fits with Christine's sense so I think it's incredibly important to break this down by class, by race, etc. And so there's this the terrible term intersectionality is useful when applied properly. And I think applied properly, what it leads you to see is that, look, white men as a group are still like out earning everybody else. They're still at the top of the apex of many kinds of institutions, but that's not true for working class white men. And it's sure as hell not true for black men. And it's very important that we note that like white women now out earn not only black women, but black men by huge margins for every dollar earned by a white woman. A black man earns 84 cents and a black woman 80 cents or something. Right? So, but the point is just being that like you've seen these race and class gaps open up at the same time as you've seen some of these gender gaps close. So who are we talking about is the question we always need to ask ourselves. But I do think I'm trying to be fair to the men who do feel a sense of loss. If Change happens this quickly, even if it's a relative loss of position, say, in reg- with regard to women. And a, a data point here is that 40% of women now earn more than the median man. And in 1979, that was 13%. Okay. Now, 40% is not 50%, which is what full equality would require, but 40% is a lot higher than 13%. And 1979 was not very long ago. And so what you've seen is this profound transformation in the relative economic position of women and men, which is not to say there isn't still more to do on that front, but it is to say, wow, that's a big change in a fundamental fact about human society, which is the economic relations between men and women, And so for men to feel dislocated and lost, I think is not surprising. And again, I think I'm just echoing kind of Christine here, but our failure just to at least acknowledge those difficulties leads men to develop grievances that are then basically fodder for the reactionaries. And I've been really guilty of this in the past myself, which is basically to kind of roll my eyes at the men who aren't getting with the program and just say, look, get with it, guys. Be a good feminist like me and you'll be great. Everything's fine. I'm great. I'm a feminist. What's wrong with you? And it's taken me a very long time to realize just what a terrible message that is, especially from someone who is flourishing. Mm-hmm. Who is doing okay when so many of our men and so many of our boys and men, especially those of the least economic advantage, are doing anything but okay. And rolling our eyes and telling them to get with the program has been a spectacularly ill-fated strategy in terms of gender relations. And it's driven men away from a commitment to gender equality rather than towards it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that this is also sort of exemplary of a a broader trend in our politics and society where our discussions tend to fall apart. There are all these instabilities, all these rapid changes that have affected much of America, but maybe haven't hurt the people in the top one to five to 10%. Honestly, usually those are often the commentariat elite, the people who work at think tanks or at newspapers. And so when a working class young man or male complains or something, elites tend to be like, what? I'm fine. Like, what are you complaining about? All the men I know are doing fine. This is a you problem, (laughs) which of course engenders resentment. You know, people feel really unseen and their problems feel very unappreciated. And we see this when we talk about the decline of marriage. Then commentators are like, oh, but I'm married. I love being married. Like what? I don't see anything. Everyone should make their own choices. We see this when we talk about shifts in Understandings of sex and gender, and how confusing that might be for people. Well, like, I know how to use the right pronouns. Like, what you just get with it, figure it out. It's not that hard. When we talk about young men here, where it's like, my son just got into Princeton, he's doing great. What's the problem here? Maybe your children need to just get it together. Of course that makes people upset, and not only does it make them upset, it makes them react even harder in the opposite direction to prove, in fact, that they have a point, that they're standing up for themselves, that there is something wrong. But actually one thing that I didn't mention, sorry to just skip back in our conversation a bit when we were talking about the church, one thing that I think that's really important is something that Richard has called out here. Changes, social changes, economic changes have happened incredibly rapidly over the past 50 years, even 30 years, whether it's changes in the economic status of many men or changes in how relationships are formed or not formed. The number of people who are married or getting married is falling. People tend to partner up later. The relationship to childbearing and childbirth and what that looks like, whether men are in fact a necessary part of it anymore. And even our very conceptions of gender and biology and what they mean or don't mean or could mean, all of those changes have been very destabilizing. And I think in the past, and even in the present, one thing that the church and that faith has offered when it comes to questions like this is a clear sense of telos, a real theory of like, this is what humans are, this is what we're for male and female, he made them, or whatever your belief structure is. Like, this is what we were made for. This is how a person is, in some sense. An understanding of one's place in the world and the goodness of that place, the goodness of a particular kind of embodiment, a sort of structure for what one does with that embodiment to be a virtuous person. And so even when changes are sort of swirling in the air socially, That could give people something to hold on to and some clarity. Men are lost. Here's a map out of the wilderness. Like that, churches and places of faith have always had a map. And I think one area where churches aren't quite sure what to do yet, perhaps, could be doing more, could be doing differently in some cases, is realizing that they have that resource and in a confusing moment offering that, like this understanding of like, what a human person is and what we're here for. There are dangers here, of course, too. When, as we talked about, churches have a very patriarchal, backwards-looking understanding of like, men have to do this and women have to do this. That's all. We don't have anything else for you. And that can be weaponized when used to blame women or blame feminists or blame LGBT people for changes in society that the church thinks are bad. But there is also a a way to use that understanding of humanness and bodiness, telos, in a positive direction to try and write out what the positive vision of a man or a woman or a family or our society could be and share that positive vision with the world, because I think everyone is very hungry for that in this moment. And there's it's so it calls to mind,
0: I think, the the old line from C.S. <laughs> Lewis, Richard's elder statesman on the other side of the pond, <laughs> you know, where he talked about how this, like, you, you angels and demons, this idea that they're either everything for some people or they're nothing for some people. It's not either one of those. And I wonder about that with manhood, too. Things are fractured and fragile when the labor market's changing, when you're not sure what to think because gender's up for grabs these days. Should masculinity, positive vision of masculinity at your congregation become everything? Should it become something we flee completely because we have no clue how to handle it? There's some middle ground, surely. I just, I wonder what the positive vision of masculinity is or ought to be, like you sort of raised at the end of your essay, you know? Should churches try to intentionally win the men if there is a larger population of women already in the pews? Should they try to do that in some way? And what's that look like? Uh, how does it become healthfully embodied?
2: <laughs> should they try to win the men is an, is an interesting phrasing. I mean... I think theoretically the church wants everyone, men and women, but also I think kind of the one attracts the other in some way. You know, what I say at the end of my piece and what I really believe is that the sexes rise and fall together, even from small spaces to large ones, a church that's all female is not necessarily the healthiest church, neither is one that's all male. If men are struggling eventually women will be struggling too and in fact you know in my experience i'm beginning to see that women who want partners who want their sons and brothers and friends to be healthy who are who are worried about them so if the church wants to reach both sexes they should be trying to help both survive i think a, a positive vision of masculinity that the church can provide and that you know we need to think about as a society overall and i feel like this is a recommendation that almost sounds controversial even though i don't know why it is the first step is to acknowledge that there is such a thing as being male as masculinity as manhood and that in fact that's fine and even good as richard said and you know as i said in my piece i think that most people don't actually want to live in an androgynous society But to have a positive vision of masculinity, first you have to say what masculinity is and then identify what could be good about it. What is unique to it? And how do you use that uniqueness in virtuous ways and celebrate that without, of course, denigrating women, without denigrating femininity, and without making the definition of maleness or masculinity so small that any man who doesn't fit it perfectly feels like there is something wrong with them.
1: Yeah. There is a great line from Robert Bly where he says that we are afraid that out of the words masculine and feminine, some moral carpenter will make boxes in which to trap us. And we're afraid of boxes, and rightly so. But he also says, but we shouldn't be afraid to use the terms anyway. And so the question is whether or not, and it's true for churches, but for society generally, how can we define without being deterministic, without trapping, right? How can we recognize that, yes, there are these broad differences and we want to see ourselves in the depictions, but without saying that if you're not like that, you're not a real man, or if you're not like that, you're not a real woman, and just accepting that there will be exceptions. And I think that the trans movement and what's happening more generally around sex and gender is in some ways an opportunity for us to make the claim that we can have exceptions to rules and both the exceptions and the rules can be okay. We don't have to abandon the rule to honor the exceptions. And in fact, Mm -hmm. in some ways, I think the more confident we are about some of those differences, the more okay we can be with the people who are maybe changing some of those who are transitioning or in some rare cases, non-binary. To me, it's such a what it really shows is the how fragile we feel about these things, mm-hmm. and maybe this circles back that we do get so freaked out, or at least some people do. I have to say, I was in San Francisco last week, and there's a church there that has a huge sign on it that says "God colon the original they them," which I thought was a very San Francisco moment. But I quote someone in my book as saying that what a lot of men lack is ontological security. Mm. And I tease it a little bit in the book and say, that's not a great bumper sticker. What do we want? Ontological security. When do we want it? (laughs) Well, whenever. But it speaks, I think, to something about what's the ground of our being? What does it mean? And to some extent, the workings of patriarchy defined in terms of the economic or material dependence of women on men answered that question. It wasn't the only answer, but it was a pretty big answer. It was certainly a big answer. It was the answer to my father, who I admire and love deeply, was that like, he never doubted in the end what his kind of role, certainly within the family, was, within the community. Absent that, in a world where we've made such huge strides towards more economic equality, what is the ontological security for men? And women actually still have more of it baked in. Because of their role as mothers, because their biological role as mothers, and again, I think we have just got to be honest about that, right? If you look at let me give you, let me just give you one example, which is if you look at the 16 to 24 year olds who aren't in aren't in work or school, they're called opportunity youth, or there's there's about the same number of men and women, but the women are mums to a much greater extent, so they're caring for children. We don't know what the guys are doing, and so we have just got to be honest about the fact that ontologically. <laughs> that sense that kind of women have of who they're going to be is just a little bit, a little bit more baked in. And for men, it's a little bit more constructed and therefore more fragile, right? So when you say masculinity is more fragile, I don't think that's a slur. I think that's an anthropological fact. And what's interesting about Christine's work on the dating market and so on too, this is anecdotal, but when I've been doing my work, I'm out giving talks. Mums. And there's a lot of mums interested in this. Mums who have boys in school are like, yeah, totally see it. Uh, yeah. Mums who have girls in school are like, what are you talking about?
0: Hmm.
1: The mums who have girls in their 20s or young women in their 20s, like, oh, oh, yeah. Because they're suddenly starting to see who they're going to marry, who are they going to date. And so I can actually... I can sort of date the mom, I can date the age of the kid, because if you've just got <laughs> girls in K-12, you're a woman, you're like, what are you talking about? You don't see it. But then your daughters go through Princeton or whatever, and hit, or wherever they go, hit the labor market, and then they hit the dating market, and the moms are like, wait, where are the guys? That's Christine. That's, I think, part of the Christine's contribution is to say, yeah, that's when things really come real for a lot of the moms. So it's really interesting. I'm making, I'm making light of it, but I think anthropologically, that's really, really the case.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're also just definitely beginning to see that statistically in college graduation rates and higher education enrollment. In fact, like almost all schools now are a majority female and the ratio is getting even worse. There was a piece in the New York Times, my competitor publication recently about how affirmative action still exists for men now Mm -hmm. because there are so many fewer men applying for colleges that campuses just desperately want them just so people won't feel like right. they're going to an all-girls
1: school. And it, and it puts off the women as well. Right? That's the other thing that comes back to the church thing, which is why some churches, I spoke to some Catholic churches recently that are setting up soccer leagues to attract men because they're finding that they're losing women. And it turns out that admissions officers will tell you that if they get too female skewed, they see drops in admissions from women and men.
0: Yeah.
1: And- Actually, that's not crazy because there is some pretty good evidence that if campuses skew too far female, the ones that are now two to one, that the University of New Hampshire recently, I think at 70-30, is that affects the dating market. Do you want to be a woman on a campus where there are only half as many men as women? Maybe not. And it actually turns out it doesn't bring out the best in either sex (laughs) in terms of how they behave towards each other to have that situation. And so I think if we zoom out from that as a sort of microcosm of the problem, what that tells us is that back to Christine's point is that a world of floundering men is very hard to make a world of flourishing women. Like it or not, we are in this together. And what's happening on campuses, when you see them swing that far away, the admissions officers are right to be worried about that. The question is, what do they do about it? And that's, I actually think the thumb on the scale in favour of men in college admissions is going to have to come off in the future years because of the scrutiny that it's going to get. But then you just got to think, okay, well, what does that mean for those campuses? So what kind of experience do we want? What kind of institutions are we trying to build there? And perhaps much more importantly, where are the men in our churches too? The paper in this that weighed one of the biggest impressions on me was by Catherine Eden and her colleagues. Ron Mincy was one of her co-authors actually, which is called The Tenuous Attachments of Working Class Men. I thoroughly Mm -hmm. recommend it. And it talks about church and work and community and family, the tenuous attachments. Given how tenuous some of those attachments have been, I think this issue about attaching men is hugely important. And the conservatives were right to warn in the 70s that if women became more economically independent and men no longer had that clear role that they would be in trouble, they were right. worry about that they were wrong to say that the men would generally cause massive trouble although some of them are and they were certainly wrong to say and that's why we shouldn't let this feminist nonsense take off right (laughs) that's why like it's a very bad message to women to say look we need you to stay in the home so that men will be okay is that okay very few women find that an appealing suggestion but they were right to warn that so fundamentally changing the economic relations between men and women wouldn't raise questions about men as well as women so their warnings were right And unfortunately, I don't think enough of us were paying attention.
2: In this conversation, we've talked a lot about the problem, about the the tenuous attachments of working class men, the sort of sense of fear and confusion as economic roles change. But as I said in my piece, the next step is to find a solution, put forward a positive vision and i'm wondering where we can find those and richard i know that you're mm. you're starting up a new a new institution i wonder if you if you have any solutions in mind that you're working on that you have plotted out for us
1: yes yeah, so thank you for mentioning it. it is it is new the american institute for boys and men it'll be the first think tank or research organization devoted to the issues of boys and men the only one. And I think that fills part of the gap we've been talking about simply by doing like nonpartisan research, pointing out some of the issues, but then to go beyond that to solutions. And I tried to do a little bit of this in my book as well, because so much of the discussion around boys and men is the secular equivalent of the book of lamentations. (laughs) There's lots of lamentation about the state of boys and men and not much by way of solutions. And so I do think it's important to keep raising awareness of that. But for example, the fact that we are seeing this declining college enrollment for men, we're never going to get back to 50-50 in higher education, right? The gap is already bigger today than it was in 72, just the other way around, just because the way that mainstream education works is always going to be a bit more female-friendly, right? So what does that mean for helping more men? Well, it means what are the vocational alternatives? What does that mean for technical high schools, apprenticeships, you know, community colleges that are be- probably a bit better suited towards men? We've got to find better alternatives to college anyway, but it turns out that's massively pro-male in practice, right? So that's hugely important. What are we doing in terms of outreach through schools to the young men who are still taking their own lives at four times higher rate than young women? So as we expand you know, school mental health provision, are we making sure there are plenty of men in there? and Last but not least, and this speaks to Christine's point about role models, what are we doing to increase the share of men in our schools? The share of K-12 teachers who are male was 33% in 1980 when Ronald Reagan first came to office. It's now 23%, 10 percentage point drop, and it keeps dropping. And Christine's talked about this, and we both talked about the fact that men in classrooms are not only good as sort of role models by being not by saying, but by being, but also they're coaches. They're much more likely to coach after school sports. They're more likely to be mentors, etc. And so where's the mass recruitment drive for male teachers? Interestingly, although both Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley criticize me in their recent books for my desire to get more men into these caring professions, because I do think there's something to be said for that. They both do say, but one place it might be a good idea to have more men is in our schools. Right. So there at least seems to be cross partisan support for the idea that just watching the share of male teachers decline is not good. Whether there'll be any action through scholarships for men, support groups for men, and massive social marketing campaigns to get men into teach, help into teaching, just as we've had women into STEM, remains to be seen. But that's the space. There's so much appetite to work on this now and there just isn't enough work. So hence like, you know, if in doubt, create a new think tank. That's my motto. <laughs>
2: That's what the men need.
1: <laughs> That's what we these do. men are crying out for. That will give them <laughs> ontological security. The American, the mission of the American Institute is to give more ontological security to boys and men. That's not really its mission statement, by the way. <laughs> but it would be awesome. If, Dad, <laughs> to, a certain, a to a certain, <laughs> to a certain <laughs> yeah.
2: group of men, that would be awesome. But I mean, one thing that, one final point that also seems really important, just in In my thinking as I wrote this essay and in talking to you, Richard, and talking to Josh, I think in some ways that my essay was perhaps more easily received because it wasn't written by a typical man in some sense. But as we've hit on just the phrase role models over and over again, and as I talked about in the essay, I think one of the key things that will be necessary both to create a positive vision and to see change is... For men to step up for men, for men to, especially older men and men who are established in their churches, in their communities elsewhere, to look around them. And when they notice the young men in their communities struggling, actually step in and be role models one-on-one with them. I, a heterosexual woman... (laughs) I'm not really going to be able to teach a man how to be a man as much as I would like to. And when it comes to a positive vision on sort of the ground at the grassroots, it will be up to men who care to speak to and model to the young men and boys in their lives.
0: Well, there's the prick yeah. of conscience and the opportunity. We can look at data at the American Institute for Boys and Men. Thank you very much, Christine for Richard Reeves.
2: Thanks so much Thank for you. having me.
0: Faith Angle connects leading scholars and leading journalists to help us think more wisely about the broad role of religion in society and how it impacts all our lives. Thanks for listening.